so our Bible passage reading today is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, and that can be found on page 1028. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brought of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Well, thanks, Colleen, and uh, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I'm the senior pastor here at the church, and if it's your first time with us, or the first time in a while, a particular warm welcome to you. Uh, it feels like we're sort of in January, which is sort of interstate and international church exchange month. We've got some of our, nine o'clock, we had some of our regulars in Canada trying not to freeze to death, and we had quite a lot of Canadians with us just visiting uh, for a few weeks, uh, which is nice. So yeah, if that's you today, it's particularly warm welcome to you. Well, it is New Year's Eve, and for many of us, we can't help but be drawn in on reflecting on the year gone by, and I reflected a little bit on uh, the leaflet letter today on some of the uh, many things that I'm thankful for, for uh, what God has done amongst us in 2017. And uh, regardless of our previous successes or failures with New Year's resolutions, we often kind of look forward wistfully to the year to come. As I've uh, watched Asher, the Asher series on Channel 9, it seems to me that uh, Light and Easy have decided to spend their entire uh, marketing budget between Christmas and New Year's trying to kind of catch on to that uh, sort of uh, sense of us wanting to do 2018 a little better. 
Uh, personally, I've resolved to declutter life somewhat in 2018, uh, both physically and in the way that I use my time, which started with Gusto on Friday, uh, where all good decluttering projects should start with uh, the shed. And uh, there's quite a big pile of stuff out in the lawn to be recycled by the end of the evening, to the bin given away on Gumtree, down to the basement. About nine cubic metres uh, of stuff, I realised. And I'd don't consider myself a hoarder, but uh, Grace told me that I was after <laughs> we buried all that uh, out of the shed. But <clears throat> I realised actually we've been sort of clinging onto and accumulating uh, stuff that really in the end we aren't going to use anytime soon, if ever, which had itself buried a lot of stuff that we really did want to use and uh, get to in the shed. Uh, like my weights set, which I did unbury, buried for the last 18 months, um, because historically weights is about the only form of exercise that can hold my interest long enough to have a health benefit. So there it sits now, pride of place in the shed, just waiting for uh, 2018 uh, to tick over. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's really at the heart of why New Year's resolutions kind of keep us, kind of keep drawing us in. Because life really does just keep filling up with stuff. Given time to reflect, like we often have between Christmas and New Year, we often find ourselves realising that we are busy doing many things in life that we made no conscious decision to do. And we probably all have the sense that we're not spending enough time on the things that we are most passionate about, perhaps where our gifts lie, and where we hope to make the biggest impact in the year ahead. We kind of know the changes that we'd like to make. Yet I think many in the room would uh, testify to an almost sort of gravitational pull that fights against us making positive change. Even a casual observer of the life of a church will notice the same forces at work. Take your eye off a church for even just a moment and you'll find it fill up with all sorts of events, programs, initiatives and partnerships, many of which have some good things to them, but often leave us too exhausted and busy to do the most important things that churches are called to do. So as I've spent the week reflecting on how I want sort of my personal 2018 to look, but also uh, thinking corporately how we use uh, the considerable people resources God has given us as a church in the coming year, I've actually found today's reading a great reminder of what we need to keep central and what needs to drive us as a church. So if you're here just checking out who Jesus is, I expect today will be very helpful in you understanding what's at the core of a church's role in the world like us and what the good news of Jesus is. So it'd be great uh, for you and everyone indeed to have your Bible open uh, to Luke chapter 3, which is on page 1028 of the Blue Bibles on your chairs. And you'll also see uh, an outline of where we're going in your leaflets. Well, we come to chapter 3 of Luke's 52 chapter, two-volume work, uh, and he's, uh, which continues on in the book of Acts. And he's still really laying down the foundations for us to understand what Jesus' life and ministry and the ongoing uh, life and ministry of the church is really all to be about. As uh, has often been the case, he gives us the historical setting, the political figures of the time, the religious figures, the geographical location uh, into which uh, John came, all to show his first readers who could check up on the facts and indeed every reader since that Luke is very consciously not writing myth, legend or odyssey, 
but recording for us eyewitness account of Jesus' life and the key people that are involved with it, like John the Baptist. We're told, verse 3, after sort of hearing the narratives of both John and Jesus as uh, young kids that roll the clock forward a number of decades, that as John's ministry kicks off, verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Bear in mind at this point, there'd been no word, sort of no public word from God's prophets for over three centuries at this point. So here comes John the Baptist bursting into the scene and summonsing people to repent. And this sort of summons of repentance is at God's initiative. Repentance is the key theme that John links here to the forgiveness of sin. As John begins to fulfill the word prophesied about him by his father some decades ago as Zechariah uh, held his young son John at just eight days old, where he said that this child would give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, Luke quotes from the prophet Isaiah, whom as we've seen in recent weeks foretold a time where God himself would dramatically intervene in the course of human history and ahead of God himself coming, ahead of him, a messenger would come preparing a way for the Lord. So Luke wants us to see that John is this long-awaited messenger preparing a way for Jesus. And there's an image which uh, Isaiah uses which doesn't date, uh, which uh, if anyone who's sort of made or driven on a freeway would know, to make a straight road you need to kind of fill in the valleys and lower the hills, kind of blow them up or do whatever you want to do to kind of lower the hills and fill in the valleys to make a highway. And it's this image that he applies to John the Baptist, making a highway for the entrance of Jesus so that Jesus could come and to, uh, bring a new world order. John goes ahead of him asking the people, calling them, actually sort of demanding a fundamental change of mind, heart and attitude and turning away from sin and back to God, which is what Christians call repentance, as Mike brought out so well in the kids' talk. And to actually publicly declare this profound change of mind, heart and attitude through the act of baptism. So crowds come to John in search of such a baptism, yet you'll notice John doesn't exactly welcome them with an international roast and a Monte Carlo. Instead, we have a sample of his more confronting preaching in verse 7. As people come to him for baptism, he says, you brood, just imagine it, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. With that first sort of landed, sort of left-handed gut punch being that people need to turn back to God in repentance in a way that is publicly visible, that needs to translate into sort of an observable fruit of repentance in people's lives, followed kind of by the strong right-hander to Israel's jaw, warning them not to presume on their lineage as children of Abraham, as God's historic people. John's saying, without a wholehearted, fruit-filled outworking of repentance, it all stands for nothing. 
That kind of John the Baptist one-two punch makes it very clear to us that following Jesus simply isn't assenting to truths about him. It's a very practical, lived, out-acknowledgement that Jesus is actually Lord and King of every part of our lives and that someone watching on should be able to tell that as they observe the fruit that it produces. Now, for many of us who have been Christian for a while, this is not a kind of a new thought, but I do think it is a very timely reminder for us. As a church, we've been quite upfront in our first five years that we want everyone who is with us to be growing in their evangelistic desire to see many know Jesus. And I think in God's kindness, the core of people who really are starting to own that has been growing. And I'm really encouraged by the number of people who've moved from being loosely attached to a church to regularly being with us, to praying for their friends, to invite people along to Christmas. We had our biggest Christmas ever with uh, nearly 500 people with us over our carol services. And people thinking through, coming up to me saying, oh, I heard you mention the Life Summer Series with childminding. Maybe if I invite my friends along, if I help out with the childminding, that'll make it easier for someone to feel comfortable leaving their uh, kids there so they can come and hear about Jesus. I've heard of some great late-night evangelistic conversations at work Christmas parties, the gospel faithfully shared and people following them up with uh, giving books for friends to read, many intentionally pursuing and prioritising genuine friendships with people who don't know Jesus, looking for opportunities to share life with them, to go to their things so that people might come to ours and hear something about the good news of Jesus. And it's been diverse too. Ladies in their 60s uh, talking to their neighbours, families, wanting to reach other families. Guys talking to work colleagues at the factory floor or the office or the building site. But there are a number of dangers that come with having a heart that increasingly learns yearns for more people to know Jesus. There's a great temptation to want to lower the bar for others for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because we kind of worry with good heart for others that if the bar's too high, surely less people will jump over it so we want to intrinsically kind of lower the bar. When in reality, passages like this make it very clear that that is not an option. We need to kind of keep our resolve to share that following Jesus is a whole-of-life commitment that leaves no area of our lives untouched. But of course, the comfort comes through knowing and experiencing a relationship with Jesus that shows us that Jesus is a great King to live for and under. He knows how to really live. He serves us and He has our best interests at heart. When I'm faced with this kind of question when it comes up when we're in a life course or sharing the gospel with someone, I always just think it's best to be upfront with people and say, well, living with Jesus as your king will change everything, but don't worry, he's a great king. Like the crowds in John's day, they, like us and our friends, want to know what does a life of fruit-bearing repentance actually look like? So the people, verse 10, ask the natural question, what then shall we do? And John answers, anyone who has two shirts should share the one with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised, don't take that as offensive if you work for the tax department. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. 
And then some soldiers, the Romans, are coming uh, to John and saying, well, what should we do? He replied, well, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, I think it's safe to assume this is not an exhaustive list of what it looks like uh, to live a repentant life. It's only really three examples out of uh, many thousands, I guess, uh, that we could look at. But they are rather uh, a helpful uh, smattering of three. I think the underlying principles that you could draw from them could be summed up as a personal life that's growing in generosity, a public life of integrity... And use any power that you have in this world responsibly. 2017 has very much been a year where we've questioned how people in power have used that and bringing to light where it's been used irresponsibly uh, for financial gain as a grasp for power or to abuse others. Which if you kind of put those kind of three examples just together, it does paint quite an expansive picture, a life where every corner is transformed by the mindset that puts the needs of others before ourselves, calling us to repent of selfishness, to shun any form of corruption and the great temptation to misuse power for our own ends. For those of us here who are followers of Jesus, again, it's a great reminder as we head into the next year, we need to maintain that resolve to practically work through what repentance in, uh, and living for God looks like in every aspect of our lives. What does it look like for an entrepreneur starting their own business as an accountant or a builder with the goal of being a good employer? What does generosity look like in that setting? Challenges to integrity will come at every turn as you try and compete with others who do sometimes cut corners, who do jobs for cash. And as an employer in a position of power, how do you use that power wisely and to benefit others? That's just one example, of, again, of many that we could draw out. But we need to have that same resolve whether we're a teacher in a classroom, a stay-at-home parent an administrator or PA, driving a truck or working within the very complex pecking order of the health system. We need the resolve to leave no corner of our life, our personal and public life, untouched as people who live for Jesus. So as one of your New Year's resolutions, you might like to pray regularly, and to me that would, you know, involve me asking Siri to remind me weekly to uh, pray something, you might need prompters like that, but to pray, to ask God to show you areas of sin in your life that are either currently invisible to you or that you've just kind of settled in for a sort of an acceptable level of sin and it no longer jumps out to you. Ongoing, fruit-filled repentance requires resolve but I'd also say, as Mike did today in the kids' talk, that we actually need help from outside. We can't just kind of manage it by resolving to kind of work harder. We need help from outside ourselves, which is a good transition into the final part of today's passage, where John speaks to those who are sort of wondering out loud whether he's the long-awaited Messiah King. And he points them beyond himself to Jesus, saying, he's not simply going to baptise with water... He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire, as John says at the end of verse 16. 
Now, this idea of being baptised with the Holy Spirit taps us into God's promises of old to give that he'd been delivering across the centuries, that a time was coming where he was going to give people new hearts and desires. I think the prophet Ezekiel puts it perhaps most clearly some 600 years earlier where he spoke of a day when God would intervene in a wonderful way in human hearts. I'll pop it up on uh, screen if we uh, can. It's uh, Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. Where Ezekiel, looking forward to this day, as God's mouthpiece says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone from you, your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You notice there the initiative, the, the starting point is God acting, God doing something, God putting a new spirit in our hearts. Speaking of the spirit's role, not only in changing our hearts and desires, but actually giving us a new power to live for God for all those who come to Jesus in repentance and have their sins forgiven. As wonderful truth as that is, we're not going to chase that one down today because John actually doesn't then head in that direction. Because if you noticed, he also says Jesus will baptise with fire, hinting as his role as judge for those who don't turn to him in repentance. Which if you're wondering where I'm importing that from, the uh, next verse makes it, I think, uh, abundantly clear in verse 17, where uh, we read that as Jesus comes, he will have, verse 17, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It sounds less confronting when someone says that with a nice accent that I don't have. <laughs> Because it's a very challenging image for us all. If you're here just checking out Jesus, there is a sharp edge to this, which it wouldn't be kind of me to soften for you, and you'd, you'd pretty much see I was working against where the passage was going, if I, even if I tried. It's a jolt to us that says that all of our reactions to Jesus matter. And that there are two sides to Jesus' ministry. And John cuts to the heart, warning us of the coming judgment of Jesus upon those who refuse his generous and most gracious offer. Yet on the other side, of course, the immensely good news that full forgiveness of sins is available to everyone free of charge who turns to Jesus in repentance. And that actually this repentance is enabled by the Holy Spirit flooding our hearts with new desires, with new power, to bring about a far-reaching change that is both personal and genuine, working its way into all our relationships, habits, home and every aspect of our lives in the public sphere. We would expect that if you're checking out Jesus, there'd be loads of questions that you would have about both sides of Jesus' ministry. Our coming life series, which starts in a few weeks, is a great place to ask them. We're putting on free dinner, free drinks, free childminding if you have kids. If you don't, just bring someone else's kids along anyway. <laughs> Pretend like you're doing them a favour. Um, because we thoroughly believe as a church that it's a great blessing and lasting joy is only to be found to those who join, turn to Jesus in repentance. The invites are on your seats today. 
If that's you, please don't let such a great opportunity to hear of Jesus pass you by. For the followers of Jesus amongst us, I think God's sort of opening act after we move past the sort of the childhood narratives of John and Jesus, his kind of opening public act of John, sending him to prepare a way for Jesus, asks of us, how is our resolve going to preach the whole of the gospel, the authentic biblical gospel that brings out both sides of Jesus' ministry? Because if you've slipped into a life of kind of comfortable Christian circles, it's all too easy just to kind of take away from today, oh, that was a, you know, a good affirmation of the truth here today at Trinity. Yet for those with a growing evangelistic heart, which I long to keep growing in my own life and in yours, a burning desire to see many joyfully accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, you'll find that this passage actually kind of hurts. There's a very real temptation to want to soften and alter the, me- the message of the full, biblical, authentic message of the gospel and kind of remove the warning. Because when your heart's really in it, it hurts like nothing else to see people who you've been loving as friends, colleagues, family, praying fervently for them to hear the gospel of Jesus to actually get to the point where people hear it, yet because they don't like it, turn away. Which happened, of course, to Jesus, many key figures in Luke's Gospel. Luke saw it firsthand as he travelled around in the journeys he records for us in Acts. And Jesus let us know that it would happen to us as well. It's actually those with the greatest evangelistic hearts that we have to watch most carefully to ensure that they don't alter the gospel. So of all the things we could do as a church in 2018, one of the things we're resolved to do is to keep guarding and developing our hearts to share the gospel in all of its truth, in all of its glory, with a great offer of forgiveness, yet also with a somber warning. In many churches that start well, that heart for the gospel often is the thing that gets buried first down the back of the shed, like my weight set, under a pile of good things that simply aren't the most important things. There are going to be a few changes come the new year, a bit of a a decluttering, a new way of thinking about and articulating how a full robust and biblically grounded Christian life works. For those of you staying at Trinity in the South, we're kicking off February with a five-week series on it called Life to the Full. I think the graphic can pop up on screen and now you'll know when you see that on the website or online what we're talking about there. Where we're simply just thinking through how as a church do we keep growing in our love and devotion for Jesus, worshipping Him in all of life, magnifying God? What does it mean to belong and feel like part of a church like ours, and to be a member and not a spectator? How do we keep growing together in our Christian maturity? What's the role of ministering to one another, using uh, gifts to serve and build our church family? And how together do we each play our part in God's mission so that many more 
can hear the immensely good news of Jesus as at the same time we guard and develop our evangelistic hearts. I'm really looking forward to the series. I could talk much longer on it, but I'll save that for February. (laughs) But for now, I'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, for the clarity which uh, John brings to the nature of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, We thank you that he speaks uh, clearly in a way that Uh, both proclaims the glories of the free offer of forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers to all who come to him in repentance. Yet also is kind enough to deliver us the sombre warning to kind of shake us out of our apathy uh, on this. Please help us uh, personally and corporately uh, to think through in the new year what it looks like to live increasing lives of fruit-filled repentance, living Uh, for Jesus' glory. And we ask in your kindness you might provide us many opportunities both here at Trinity Inner South and as Trinity Church only kicks off to share this great news of the gospel with many. Please help us to winsomely and lovingly and humbly proclaim the whole gospel, the authentic biblical gospel. And by the power of your spirit might you bring many to repentance and faith and great joy as, uh, as some acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour for the first time. We ask that you would do these great things amongst us for our immense benefit and for your glory alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.